Let's pray for those, and if there's more, we can certainly pray for those later, but let's uh, get going. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the people you put into our paths each week um, to speak of you and to proclaim you. Um, We pray uh, just for Tony um, with uh, this fellow Izzy at the gas station there. Thank you for just even uh, the grace to foray into uh, spiritual territory to speak of even proverbial truth. Uh, that people uh, readily agree with, oh Lord God, and pray that it would drive back to the gospel and just that there would be that ongoing opportunity and boldness on the part of Tony and Julie. Thank you for them uh, pursuing that. Thank you for Steve on the other side of town in Pine Grove, uh, or at least uh, down the road a bit anyway, uh, just to be speaking to some of the attendants there at the gas station and pray that there would be just fruit. Uh, Lord, we love you and we want others to know you. We pray for our time this morning as we start talking about uh, confessions of faith and how this works. Uh, Lord, give us understanding. Um, Give us uh, grace to be biblical and uh, to honor you and how we think and how we act. Um, And what we confess, oh Lord God, help us to confess the truth. Uh, Lord, we pray these things. We ask for your blessing on this time. In your name, amen. So um, the overarching... um, as we enter this kind of series, um, it's, we're kind of melding the equipping hour piece and also doctrinal confessions piece because we have a new member confession of faith that we're proposing, and there is an elder deacon confession of faith that we've already adopted as elders, and we'll talk more about that in a sec. Uh, but we didn't want to just walk through those doctrinal statements. We're going to do that. We're going to walk through the new doctrinal statements paragraph by paragraph, uh, so that we all understand why, why do we have this? Why do we confess this? But one of the things we want to do is not just talk through those doctrinal statements, but we want to talk about why, the why of doctrinal statements, the why of confessions of faith. Uh, even uh, We probably won't get time to do the historical run-through, uh, although that's interesting, uh, how confessions of faith have developed through the centuries and through church history. Uh, but we want to give that broader framework. Why do we have them? Um, and then how do we use them as a church uh, in general? So that's where we're going. Um, if you want a good kind of resource to talk about this, to get more of even the history, I would recommend uh, the Creedle, not Cradle, Creedle. Ashley keeps saying every time I say that, it sounds like Cradle. Um, but Creedle imperative by Carl Truman. He's the guy that wrote that Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self that I've been referencing. Good thinker. He's actually Presbyterian, um, but he keeps it broad enough to where, uh, whether you're talking as a Baptist or a Presbyterian, he he just gives that framework of uh, creeds and confessions. Really good uh, book if you want to read that. So let's talk briefly, just in terms of definition. We usually use some of these terms interchangeably. Creed, confession, doctrinal statement, uh, and then there's this other category that we don't talk as much about anymore, uh, catechism. Catechism. But all of those are kind of in the same realm, so I wanted to start by just giving you some brief definitions. Uh, All of those, creed, confession, doctrinal statement, catechism, all of them, they do different things, Uh, at least um, catechisms is kind of a little bit different than the others, but they're all driving at giving a summary of biblical truth. A summary of biblical truth. So whenever we're talking about one of these things, um, you know, one of the things is, well, why do we need creeds and confessions? Uh, Can't we just go by the Bible? Well, I'll give you an argument for why we need creeds and confessions. However, 
what we need to understand is fundamentally what we're striving for with a doctrinal statement, with a confession of faith, with a creed, with a catechism, is that we're striving to summarize biblical teaching, right? Um, and we do this all the time, right? We do this when we present the gospel. Uh, we're not like just reading scripture, although we should have scripture in our gospel presentation, right? We're summarizing, here's the gospel, let me deliver it to you. But that's the, the if each one of those is, is designed to have a summary of uh, biblical teaching. I really feel like creed, a creed uh, and a confession and a doctrinal statement, they're kind of interchangeable terms. Um, maybe there's, I'm sure someone could argue with me as far as, well, this is different from this, this is different from this. But basically, they're all a creed, a confession, a doctrinal statement. In my mind, they're basically interchangeable. They're a statement, they're a summary of the faith, uh, and they're things that we confess to be true. They're not just static sitting there, but they're things that we say, and historically this is the case, we believe in this, and this is what, uh, who we are. A catechism is slightly different. Anyone go through catechism, like class or teaching? The Hardmans are nodding their heads. So what was, what was that like, Elaine and John? Well, I mean, just in general, what is a catechism class? What, what is a catechism? What's it like? Been too long? That's okay. That's okay. So, anyone else? What's, how does it, what is a catechism normally, how is it normally formatted when you think of Question and answer, right? So, yeah, there's, it's question and answer and memorization. And historically, catechisms were used to train people, uh, even before baptism, uh, but also just in general, uh, to the, the training up of children, the training up of the congregation in general. And it was designed where you would ask a question, and then there would be an answer, a doctrinally uh, confessing answer. So Heidelberg Catechism, you might have heard of that. It was produced during the Reformation. But like the first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And basically the answer is uh, that I with soul and body uh, belong to my faithful Jesus Christ, who will rescue me to the end. I'm obviously paraphrasing. but And then there's question after question after question that leads you through doctrine, so it's different than a doctrinal statement, slightly, and it's different than a creed and confession, but it's really teaching you. It's teaching you a biblical framework as you walk through it. So it's slightly different than a creed or confession or a doctrinal statement, but again, it's designed to be a summary of biblical teaching. Okay? So I just kind of want to give you that broad, broad framework as we start thinking about a doctrinal statements. Now, we're talking about our doctrinal statements or our creeds or confessions. Again, I, I would use those as interchangeable terms. Now, if we're going to start with that, we need a biblical warrant, right? Everything we want to do, we want to be biblical. So I would argue that there's a biblical warrant for such a thing as confessions of faith, that even within the scriptures themselves, you see a warrant uh, for developing and confessing creeds and confessions. Usually creeds and confessions, they can be long or they can be short, um, depending on what it is. But um, if you're talking about um, something that's pithy, that's short, that summarizes doctrinal truth, you do see in the scriptures several versions of that, even in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And as soon as I mention that, you guys are probably like, oh yeah, hey, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of confession-y. Um, so someone go ahead and read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Through nine, please. You shall teach them diligently. 
This became, I mean, this is called the Shema. Uh, that's the word for here in the, it's a command. Uh, that's what this starts with. Shema, O Yisrael, right? Uh, hear, O Israel. Um, and really, this kind of becomes the launching point for the rest of the law. And so Jews would recite this. Even Jesus recites this as the first, the greatest commandment, right? This is kind of the core. If you were to boil it down, if you were to boil the law down on a lot of, at least as far as the first commandment, this this is it. And so Jews would recite this regularly in a creedal sort of way because it has doctrinal content. Uh, uh, Yahweh is our God. Um, Yahweh, uh, he's one Yahweh. And so there's who is, it's talking, it starts with the identity of who Yahweh is and then it moves to um, uh, what does this mean for you? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So uh, that's creedal-ish. It's confession-ish. Uh, and even as you look at Maybe even, you notice even in here, parents are supposed to pass on to the next generation, to the children, uh, the knowledge of the law. So definitely this statement, but even as you walk through the law, the different stipulations, and the enforcement of the law was through the community, through, uh, yes, the leaders, but also the community. If they identified anyone's like, hey, that person's going astray doctrinally, they're teaching us to go after another god, well, then the community would bring it together and say, hey... Uh, you're going astray from our confession of faith, essentially, um, is, is what that boiled down to. So there's one instance where you start to see, oh, they did this sort of thing, and it was kind of uh, part of what was supposed to happen in Israel. But then we can fast forward to the New Testament. So fast forward actually to Matthew 10. We were there a couple weeks ago. And... Not that this is a confession per se, but it talks about confession. Um, verse 32 and 33 says this. So everyone who can acknowledges, and actually that the word there is confess. It's the word confess. Whoever confesses me before men, I also will confess before my father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. And what you see there, you don't see a confession per se, but you do see that Jesus wants a public confession of faith. That's the idea of confession in the New Testament, is uh, I am going public with my proclamation of who Jesus is and my faith in him. And Jesus said, you do that publicly, I'm going to acknowledge you before my Father. It's going to be very public at the judgment seat. And conversely, if you deny me, even by staying silent, then I'm going to deny you, again, in a public way uh, for the judgment seat. That's essentially what's going on. So that, again, that's not a confession per se, but it does give us kind of some of that warrant for a public confession, a com public confession of who Jesus is. And, um, and we'll, we'll see this more as we go, uh, just confessing Jesus, right, the Mormons say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but they're believing in a fundamentally different God and a fundamentally different doctrine, right? So it has a doctrinal content. It has to have a doctrinal content. Well, who is Jesus? What is he like? What has he done? Uh, who is he in relation to the Father and the Spirit? That has to be behind a true confession of faith. So it's doctrinal um, in nature. Any questions up to this point? We're going to keep looking at biblical passages that just kind of give us this warrant. But yeah, Pat. Oh, good. Um, so like... 
like a warrant for an arrest, right? You, you have to have cause for, to go into someone's house, right? Um, so what we're talking about is like a cause to, um, to, make, to even make the claim of why should we even have a doctrinal statement, period? Like why should we even have what is a human creation, really? These are, these are not biblical words. They're tr- attempting to be a summary of biblical truth, but it's human words nonetheless. What is our warrant, our cause, our justification for even going that direction? Thank you for asking that. I appreciate that. So, yeah. Um, so that's what we mean by warrant. Just like you, a warrant to enter the house, you have, do, have to have due cause. So we have to have due cause for believing that confessions of faith are useful. I could jump right into the confession of faith, but that doesn't mean no good unless we agree that the Bible itself actually gives us due cause for having such a thing. So... Uh, good, good, good question. Any other questions up to this point? All right, let's keep looking at some verses then. Uh, Romans 10, Romans 10. And you guys might, even with that reference, you guys might be knowing where I'm going. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Someone go ahead and read that. Right, so again, there's doctrinal content here. What is the doctrinal content that must be confessed, uh, confessed publicly? Jesus is Lord, Lord, right? Um, Which we have to unpack that. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means he's actually Yahweh, right? That that, that term Lord, right? uh, What was used in the Greek version to refer back to Yahweh in the Old Testament, right? So you're really ascribing to Jesus' deity, so there's doctrinal content right there. Uh, but then even who is Jesus? We've got the resurrection. There's, there's inherent in these words, right? It's really pithy. It's really short. But inherent and packed into that statement is a lot of doctrinal freight, a lot of belief uh, and understanding of the nature of God and who he is, that when you publicly confess that, okay, you're not just, you're confessing Jesus is Lord, but what does that mean? It means he's God. Uh, we're also confessing the resurrection. We're confessing what Jesus did. Um, so again, you see, uh, is that a creed? Nah, it's creed-ish, right? But it's the idea that this, um, for someone to confess in a short, pithy way, Jesus is Lord and believe in the resurrection, believe that God raised him from the dead, um, if you confess that, you're saved, right? If you, now, that doesn't mean you just mentally assent to the truth, right? There's trust in that. There's all of those sorts of things. But for our purposes, it shows us there's a warrant, there's a warrant for a summary of truth that you need to confess publicly in order to be uh, uh, saved, um, in order to be Christian. Yeah, Ken. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely, which he talks about, right? Uh, what's going on in the heart? So, in none of this are we just thinking, oh yeah, we just need to be, we just need to have the right form of words. We need to have the right formula. Now, you need to have the right formula, but that's not enough, right? You also need to believe that, to trust, uh, so that it's not just, oh yeah, mentally I'm registering that, but my heart is through these things entrusting themselves to God. Um, 
uh, and making a proclamation to the world, right? Here's who I am because here's who God is, and I trust him. Um, that's that's kind of the idea. So, yeah, good, Ken. Thank you. Uh, anything else up for, for that Romans 10? Okay, let's go to another one. Um, let's go to 1 Timothy 3. And um, let's go ahead. Uh, would someone read verse 14 through 16 in 1 Timothy 3? So, a couple things you see in this section. One, you see the nature of the church. It's a household. It's a family. But even Paul is applying that to a local church in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. And the church is what? A pillar and buttress of the truth. Part of the mission of the church is to uphold and reinforce the truth. And then he goes right in, in verse 16, into the truth. Uh, The main truth that we confess, namely Jesus Christ... And I don't know if in your Bibles, is it kind of set in a poetic format? Um, And that's good. This is probably either an early hymn or an early confession. And those two actually kind of merge, if you think about it. Um, In fact, I think one of the songs we sing, it's based on the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? We believe in one truth. They merge actually quite nicely, and that's intentionally so. That's actually one of the uses of good creeds and confessions, is you can actually sing them um, if you're doing it right. Uh, But, in any case, what you see here is Paul's got a really pithy summary of truth that the church confesses. He was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation, vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit, and he was justified in the sense of justified in seeing and vindicating that he was the Messiah, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, this is what we do, we proclaim the gospel, Believed on in the world, that's what we're aiming at, taken up to glory, right? Um, Jesus' ascension is right there. Um, So what you see here is Paul's talking about the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, let me give you a really concise version of the truth that we're all about, Jesus, and what he has done in the world. So again, you see that warrant of like, uh, is that, uh, is that, either that was something the early church was singing, whether Paul composed it or whether it was someone else and he just borrowed it and put it in. Um, the early church was singing these sorts of things, confessing these sorts of things as a way of summarizing biblical truth, right? Um, you can see this also in Philippians. Turn back to Philippians. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this is a familiar passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now your, the ESV doesn't set this off as poetic, uh, and scholars differ whether this is another song or, or creedal statement, uh, or not necessarily creedal statement. They usually debate whether it's a hymn or not. Um, but so, so some ver- your version might set it off kind of poetic fashion. Mine doesn't. But regardless, scholars debate it's similar. It's similar to what we just saw, where it's giving doctrinal content about who Jesus is. Uh, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had it, but he didn't grasp it. He was incarnated. He died. Uh, and then implicitly, there's a resurrection because he's going to be exalted, and uh, in in the um, and everyone's going to bow before him at the end, right? So again, you see these early summaries of faith, um, and uh, you see whether Paul just wrote it or whether he just borrowed it and slapped it in there. Either way, it, uh, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, and you see this is the sort of doctrinal statements that the church was making early on. Is it a full kind of formal creed? Eh, maybe we couldn't go that far, but at least you start to see the impetus for that. Uh, it's a natural thing to do, and it's something that God honors. So uh, any, I've got more verses, but um, any questions up to this point? Yeah. 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 It's a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Deuteronomy 32, I think, um, is where you see exactly that. God has people memorize a song. So it's not all of scripture, but it's like a summary of God's dealing with his people um, so that they remember and can confess that really in the future. So these things are actually, when you start thinking about it, these things are kind of laced throughout scripture, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, summaries of who God is with doctrinal content uh, of a variety of sorts, especially in the New Testament as we think about confessing the Christ. Um, there's different, uh, we're going to look at a few more passages. Uh, again, less more, less about the creeds themselves. I wanted to give you a picture. So Romans 10, 1 Timothy 3, Philippians 2, those are like, okay, we can see some of these. But then we also want to talk about like uh, just instruction in general, about holding doctrine and how we pass that on. Uh, So let's look at a couple more. Uh, Galatians. Go to Galatians. And again, the purpose I'm doing this, I want you to see that we're not just out of thin air deciding, all right, we need a confession. We need to do some... This is is warranted. We have due cause for doing something like this from the scriptures themselves. Uh, Galatians 6... Or excuse me, Galatians 1, 6... Um, this is probably Paul's earliest letter, and he's talking to the Galatians, people he ministered to on his first missionary journey. And notice what he says. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what does he say here? I mean, he's essentially saying, you guys, I delivered to you a, a gospel. Uh, there's some form to the gospel, right? And he's saying, you guys are turning away from it. You're turning away from the gospel. And that's bad, because anyone who turns away from the true gospel or teaches you to tr- uh, turn away from the true gospel is accursed, Right? So here you see another aspect of, um, if you were to think about the things that we must believe, the gospel is priority number one. We have to believe the true gospel. There's a, there's a true gospel and there's a false gospel. And those who distort the true gospel, uh, like these false teachers that were here, they're accursed. That's actually one of the things that you see even in the Bible, but also through historic creeds and confessions, anathemas. That's what this word is, anathemas, meaning you're damned to hell if you um, distort the gospel, right? That's the seriousness of it. Um, and you can, again, this isn't a creed, but it kind of it shows us the impetus, right? We need to guard the gospel. We need to protect the gospel from distortion. And so um, this is priority number one. And you see Paul, who's he talking to, by the way? Who's he talking to? The Galatians, me- meaning the Galatian who? Church, the whole church. He's talking to the whole church, and there's lots of churches in this area that he visited, right? But he's talking, he's not singling out the leaders, he's singling out the people who make up these churches. Meaning what? We are all responsible for guarding the gospel. We are all responsible for guarding the gospel and protecting the gospel, right? Uh, And you're going to see that um, throughout uh, some of the things we're going to see, right, that Paul in his letters is always direct. He, he does talk to the leaders, Philippians 1, he, but he talks to the saints first. Philippians 1.1 1, 1 says, uh, I'm, uh, I'm greeting you, the saints, with the overseers and deacons, right? So he's addressing the saints first, the members, and then, of course, there's the overseers and deacons within that, but in his letters, he's always addressing the church first. It's first and foremost their responsibility to guard the truth. Um, so that's one of the things you see here in Galatians 1. Okay. Uh, any questions up to this point? Okay. First uh, t- Thessalonians. First Thessalonians two. First Thessalonians two thirteen through fifteen. Someone go ahead and read that. I'll wait. First th- Through 15, please.
Uh, no, go ahead and stop there. Because I, uh, maybe I got the wrong reference. That can happen. Oh, there we go. Second Thessalonians. That's the problem. You ever done that before? Um, yeah. That happened to me at that uh, one of the benedictions. Uh, it was like supposed to be in Isaiah, and I was in Jeremiah, and I'm like looking at it, and it's talking about like Babylon and people going into exile, and I'm like, what did I do wrong? Uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, to Second Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you. Um, yeah, okay, uh, because he chose you. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the, our gospel so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And what you see in this is this idea of uh, they're passed along the gospel, but traditions were also passed on. Now, tradition has not equal authority with Scripture, make that very very clear but that what you do see is there is a uh there is truth that is being passed on to the next generation passed on to uh the believers here's the form of doctrine we're giving you here's the traditions here's the gospel pass that on right pass that on uh, except what we're teaching you by the written scriptures and then pass on what we were teaching you as well so there's that you can see the same thing um, of passing on, passing on a form of truth, a form of sound words uh, to, in 2 Timothy, Paul's addressing Timothy. So now he's addressing a church leader. Um, and 2 Timothy 1.13 says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there again, you see a pattern of sound words. Paul's teaching uh, has doctrinal content, obviously, since we look at the, the letters he wrote. Uh, and he's telling Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there's a summary teaching. There's a pattern of sound words that you need to be following which tie that in with 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who are to teach others also. So now he's talking to a church leader and saying, you have a pattern of sound words. You have a, uh, you've seen my teaching, my doctrine. That's what doctrine means, is teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. You've seen my pattern of sound words. You've heard these things, me say these things, and many, uh, among many people, among many witnesses, now pass them on. Pass them on. Pass on the pattern of sound words, right? Which, again, would give us impetus for a warrant, a due cause for doctrinal uh, statements. Uh, and this time it's to leaders, right? Now the leaders get specifically addressed. Now let's do one final one, and then we can, we can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, Titus. Titus 1, 5 through 9. Someone go ahead and read Titus 1, 5 through 9.
Okay, so what do you primarily see in Titus 1, 5 through 9? Yeah, the standard for elder, that's what this is. This is one of the passages, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is the other key one. There's others as well, but those are the two primary ones. So in Titus, what, what, is, the, what is the emphasis in 1, 5 through 9? Yeah, and it's a both and, right? There's both, a, a lot of these things that he's talking about, a lot of the, the, the qualifications are character qualifications, meaning here's the character you need to have, but uh, at the end there, uh, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may give instruction in sound or healthy, that's the word for healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict, right? So you, I think you said it well, Tony, that it's, it's the content, it's the word, it's what's being taught from the word, but then it's a life that matches that, right? Both and, both and. Uh, but what we see here for our purposes is you see the leaders, the elders, are commanded to know and defend sound doctrine, right? So there's a charge to the churches, we already saw that, but there's a charge to the leadership. There's a charge to the leadership to be able to uh, hold the sound doctrine and refute, right? Uh, uh, you're speaking falsehood, you're speaking wrong. You let me argue from the scriptures why that's wrong. Uh, that needs to be there for uh, the elders, okay? All of what we just did, and walking through those, um, the main contention is this. Uh, there's warrant for having confessions of faith. Uh, summaries of biblical teaching. We're being biblical in the sense that we're trying to summarize biblical truth. The early Christians were doing this. You can catch hints of it throughout the scriptures. So this is one of the reasons why we can go ahead and talk about doctrinal statements is because the Bible itself gives us warrant, due cause, for creating such things and using them as tests uh, for orthodoxy, right? Uh, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and trust it to faithful men. Um, so... Uh, hold fast to the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. There are other places we could go to as well. But that's my main contention in walking you through those verses. Before we even talk about a doctrinal statement, we, didn't know, we need to know that we have a biblical warrant to do it. Um, and so uh, do you guys have any questions uh, about that? Yeah, uh, Dan. I'm in agreement that we need to know the doctrinal statement. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. And, uh, the, and that's a good question, right? In our const current version of the Constitution of Bylaws, um, and there's a change log in our Constitution of by and Bylaws, but one of the very first things in the Constitution of Bylaws is our current doctrinal statement, right? And that current doctrinal statement, um, based on our membership process, all members um, are supposed to ascribe to that doctrinal statement. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, Dan. We're going to talk about that because I knew that that would come up. Um, but we need a little bit more background. Short answer, yes. But um, there's reason, yes and no. <laughs> uh, there are, it's, it's sound, right? Uh, the doctrine in there is sound. 
but the problem comes with uh, what we're requiring people to sign off on to be a part of a member of our church. Uh, and that's where we're going with this. But I want to give you the broad framework before we, we get there. So we're getting there. We are. So um, any other questions, comments up to this point? Okay. Uh, sometimes people raise the objection. I kind of said it earlier. Can't we just say that we believe the Bible? The Bible's my creed. Well, the problem is if you say that and you don't actually have a doctrinal statement, then functionally everything you say and do as a church is blanket biblical, right? If we believe nothing but the Bible, and we believe that, we believe in the, the supremacy of the authority, we believe in the authority of the scriptures, the sola scriptura, we believe that, but if we just say we will have no creed but the Bible, well then everything you do and teach automatically has a blanket kind of whitewashed, it's biblical. In other words, it's not presented publicly, it's not presented for public scrutiny and whatever's said and taught, right? Um, so that's the idea. If you just say, we have no creed with the Bible, really you have a creed implicitly in what you do and what you teach. You have a creed already implicitly. It's just not for public consumption. This is why we want public documents that are able to be scrutinized, right? Because they aren't scripture. They are summaries of scriptural teaching. They, we want public documents that um, can be scrutinized. Uh, so that's another reason. So, so the person who says, well, I don't have any creed but the Bible, there's a good impetus behind that usually, meaning like we believe in the authority of scriptures, absolutely, and yet we all, we all summarize biblical truth in one fashion or another, and so we want to make these things official and public and clear so that they're, you can see them, you can visit them, you can say, hey, is that right? Is that in accord with biblical truth? Um, and a, a similar objection that people sometimes bring up, aren't we vesting authority into human words and putting them above scripture, right? You could see how someone would argue that, right? Like, you're creating these creeds, these doctrinal statements, these confessions, um, and um, aren't you putting authority in human words rather than the scriptures? Well, again, what we would say is not if they're used correctly as summaries of biblical teaching and as what we call normed norms. You know what a norm is? What's a norm? What's that? Sure, okay, yeah. So you're thinking of specific mathematical usage. I'm with you, Susan, all right. Um, but, but in general, what's a norm? Okay, yeah, or an authority, a standard right? A standard. So in that sense, Susan's kind of, the middle of the bell curve is kind of the standard, if you think about it like that. The ultimate norm is the scriptures. We agree on that. Sola scriptura. Do we confess that the scriptures alone are the norm, the standard for all that we do and teach? Can I get an amen? Okay, all right. Now, when we talk about a creed or a confession, is that a norm? Is it a standard? It is a standard because it's a summary of biblical truth. However, it's a little bit different than Scripture, right? Because Scripture is the ultimate standard. So that creed and confession is always subject to the scrutiny of the Scriptures. So what we call it is a normed norm. 
So every creed and confession is normed by the scriptures. It's held to the standard of the scriptures. It's kind of like um, in the U.S. we have, in Washington, D.C., there's like the foot, right? Uh, they, there is kept, like under lock and key, I think, uh, and under tight security, like here's a pound, here's a foot. That's the norm, like the norm. So a ruler is a norm, a yardstick. I go down to Tumalum and buy myself a yardstick, right? That's a norm, but it's a normed norm because it ultimately has to conform back to that foot um, that's at uh, Washington, um, D.C. That's the idea of creeds and confessions, right? It's a normed norm. It has authority. It is a standard, but it's always subject to the scrutiny of the scriptures, right? Uh, conversely, you could say it like this. The Bible is the norming norm, meaning it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate standard. It's the foot. Uh, it's the, um, everything gets normed by the scriptures. That's what we mean by sola scriptura, okay? Um, so, aren't we vesting authority in the human words and putting them above scripture? Not if they're used correctly as summaries of biblical teaching and as normed norms, okay? Um, so, I'm going to pause there for today. Basically, where we're going with this, next week, we're going to talk about this. To be useful, confessions of faith have to be enforceable, Right? You see this in the school systems. You can have, I was, when I was working in co the colleges, we had these beautiful learning standards, very, very well written. It didn't matter unless you enforced it, right? Same thing with creeds and confessions. There are churches out there that have great statements of faith on paper, and yet they're not practicing them, right? So we need to talk about the enforceability and the authority and within a lo local church of creeds and confessions. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. That will get us to talking about the authority of the members versus the authority of the elders. And ultimately, that's going to lead us to why we're having two doctrinal statements now. That's where we're moving. So all of this is to give you a broader framework of why do we have these things? Why are we doing these things, right? And so next week, we'll talk about uh, how do we enforce creeds and confessions, what authority do the members have versus what authority do the elders have, uh, which will ultimately lead us to talking to the two confessions. And then at that point, we'll be ready to talk about, all right, let's start marching through them and start working through uh, each one. So if you have questions or concerns, uh, we will hand out hard copies of those confessions when we start marching through them. Uh, Julie was like, let's, let's wait until we're, we're ready to do that. So uh, they are coming. We've emailed those out to you in a couple ways. If you don't have access to them or you want to print copy right now, that's totally fine. Just ask us. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the pattern of sound words that you've given to us. Lord, help us to be faithful in guarding it and protecting it and keeping it and passing it on to the next generation. Lord, help us to always measure what we believe by the scriptures. Lord, it is the ultimate norm, the, the norming norm, oh Lord God. And we, we thank you for it. We thank you for preserving the scriptures for us. Um, we pray that we would be faithful. Prepare us for uh, just the opportunity to preach the word, to sing the word, uh, to sing doctrine, to sing truth. Um, we thank you for that, and we just pray that you bless the mor this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.